Message by Rev. Frank Barker. Topic of this message, God's gift of power to get wealth. Scripture, Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 10 through 18. We want to especially thank the new song, and we're looking forward to hearing from them tonight in a longer opportunity. And I know you'll want to be back tonight to hear them as they have time to really share with us some in song. Let's turn in our Bibles, please, to Deuteronomy chapter 8. We'll be dealing today with verses 10 through 18 of Deuteronomy 8. Last night as I was sitting at the supper table, I told the children, I said, uh, <clears throat> it's that time of the year again when I speak about money. And I said, uh, <clears throat> if you were bringing my message, uh, why would you tell people to give? And uh, one of them said, so you'll get paid. <laughs> uh, well, uh, <clears throat> I'm reminded uh, when we uh, look at the passage before us, which someone has called the theology of money, and maybe it could better be called the theology of making money, of Charles Dickens' Christmas story. And if you remember the basic plot, old Scrooge, who's extremely tight-fisted, has a visit from his deceased partner, uh, Jacob Morley. The ghost of uh, Jacob Morley comes back about Christmas time, rattling his chains to appear to Scrooge. And uh, as uh, the ghost indicates that uh, because he did not uh, give as he should have given in this life, he is condemned to giving now in terms of uh, his spirit walking the earth, dragging its chains. And uh, Scrooge's comment says, uh, is to him is, but Jacob, you were a good uh, businessman. You always were a good man of business. Business, cried the ghost. Mankind was my business. The common welfare was my business. Charity, mercy, and benevolence were all my business. The dealings of my trade were but a drop of water in the comprehensive ocean of my business. We pick up something of just what Jacob Morley was speaking of in this passage in Deuteronomy chapter 8. The first thing that we have here is the demand to acknowledge that our material wealth is from God. In verse 10 of Deuteronomy 8, When thou hast eaten and art full, then shalt thou bless the Lord thy God for the good land which he hath given thee. 
God's ownership of the land is a basic principle of Scripture. In Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God owns the land. In Leviticus 25-23, and the land shall not be sold in perpetuity, for the land is mine, for ye are strangers and sojourners with me, says the Lord. Psalm 50, 10 to 12, every beast of the forest is mine, and the cattle on a thousand hills. Haggai 2, 8, the silver is mine, and the gold is mine, saith the Lord. Two men were discussing title to a particular piece of property, and uh, one said to the other, Are the lawyers still searching for a clear title to Oak Dean? Uh, yes, responded Alward de Coster. They have traced the title back to Lord Mayor Woodruff of England, who in 1660 took out a claim, but there is a prior claim, it seems. And I tell my wife that I should not be surprised to see Adam's name appearing in the title deed. And even then, said Mr. Kendrick, the title will not be clear. There is a prior claim. If we trace the title deeds of all estates to their origin, we shall find in the most ancient of all land records this entry. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And across every title deed that has ever been executed, is God's signature, the earth is man, and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. Then, if God's signature is upon all property, may I ask where man's claim comes in, asked de Coster. We are at best his tenants, and if we do not recognize his ownership, we are but squatters, answered Kendrick. God's ownership of the land. When we speak of the theology of money, that's the first principle. God's ownership of the land, of the world, and they that dwell therein. God's gift of the land. In verse 10, when thou hast eaten and are full, then thou shalt bless the Lord thy God for the good land which he hath given thee. God's gift of the land. Though God owns it and retains ownership, still he gives us, as he gave Israel, a portion of the land to dwell in and to live off of. And uh, this gift of material resources that he entrusts to us is in terms of a stewardship. It's his. We are to manage it for him. We must give account to him of how we carry out our stewardships. That means that private property really is nothing but a sacred trust. Contrast that with the uh, typical definition of lawyer uh, in terms of private property, Blackstone, the famous legal 
uh, writer says in his definition of property that that sole and despotic dominion which one man claims and exercises over the external things of the world in total exclusion of every other individual. That sole and despotic dominion. Uh, we can't take that definition of private property, can we? Because we don't have dominion. We manage another's property. And we must give account. So then to have is to owe and not to own. It's required of stewards that a man be found faithful. And if we are faithful, then God blesses us as stewards. Trust in the Lord, do good. Verily thou shalt be fed. Even in times of adversity, he says, in the days of famine, they shall be satisfied. Jesus said, Behold, the fowls of the air. Uh, they toil not, neither do they sow. <clears throat> Your heavenly Father feedeth them. Uh, as Luther said, there are many lessons we can learn from Dr. Sparrow. Ye are of much more value than many sparrows, said Jesus. So we see God's ownership of the land, God's gift of the land, their acknowledgment of this. When thou hast eaten and art full, then shalt thou bless the Lord thy God for the good land which he hath given thee. How were they to acknowledge it then? How are we to acknowledge it now? As Charlie Jager mentioned, they were to acknowledge it by the tithe. In Leviticus, chapter 27, in reference to the tithe, God says, All the tithe of the land, whether of the seed of the land or of the fruit of the tree, is the Lord's. It is holy unto the Lord. Verse 32, Concerning the tithe of the herd or of the flock, even whatsoever passeth under the rod, the tenth shall be holy unto the Lord. They were to acknowledge his ownership by giving him their first fruits, a tenth of all that they had, first, his part first. And this was not to say that was all that God owned. He owned it all. But this was the way they were to acknowledge his ownership and their stewardship. And so this law of the tithe was meant to be a great blessing, a perpetual safeguard to help them remember, lest they fall into the awful trap, the deadly error, the erroneous thought that it belonged to them, and that they owned their resources. Not that that was the end of their obligation when they had given formal acknowledgement in the tithe. They were to manage the rest for him, administer all for God. Now, we see how it was to be acknowledged then. How is it to be acknowledged now? In the same way, the tithe is still the formal acknowledgement of this. Of course, we must give ourselves. We must begin with giving ourselves. We must <clears throat> uh, 
give him the right to rule over us, surrender our wills, put our trust in Jesus Christ as our Savior, receive his gift of salvation by faith in Christ crucified for us, crucified and risen, and true repentance as we surrender our wills. That's the starting place. But then we must acknowledge his ownership and our stewardship as we render the tithe and then as we administer all for him. How much must a rich man give, someone asked. Well, he must give enough to save his soul. What do you mean? I thought salvation was a gift. That's right. It is. Salvation is a gift. But to receive that gift, I must give myself. I must surrender myself. The rich man has to give that, doesn't he? He must give enough to save his soul. That means he must give all. He must give himself. How much must a rich man give? He must give like this. He must be able to say with the Apostle Paul at the end of his journey, I, a rich man, have fought the good fight. I, a rich man, have kept the faith. I, a rich man, have finished the course. I have uh, kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at his appearing. All of us must be able to say that, that we have fought the good fight that we have finished our course, that we have kept the faith. We must give ourselves. When we give and administer all for him, that's not to say that we must necessarily get rid of our riches. If he says to do that, we must do it, but we wouldn't necessarily help the world by depleting ourselves of all of our resources, it's better to keep them and manage them for him uh, within reason. The Rothschild of England, a famous banking firm, on one occasion, Rothschild uh, was accosted by a man who said, you have a million pounds. And Rothschild said, well, he said, it's not right for you to have all of that money. He said, uh, it belongs to the people. Well, he said, uh, which people are we speaking of? The people of England or the people of the world? And the man faltered and he said, uh, the people of the world. He said, all right. He said, uh, here, take your share out of this and then distribute the rest where it belongs. And he handed him a penny. <laughs> As you can see, for one man to deplete himself of all of his resources would not necessarily be a great blessing to the world. He might could be a better blessing by taking it and managing it for God. You know, uh, it's not necessary to give all of our resources away, but it is absolutely necessary to acknowledge that they are from him, to acknowledge our silent partner, or better, the owner for whom we manage. 
It's one thing to make contributions. It's another thing to divide profits with our silent partner, or rather to render unto our owner that which he says render. One example is worth a million words, and I'd like to use an example. Birmingham happens to have had in the past a rare example of a Christian man, a businessman, who understood these principles and who sought, as few men have sought, to actually put it to work in his everyday life, to Christianize his possessions. He was a man by the name of John J. Egan. He was a Presbyterian elder in Atlanta, the Central Presbyterian Church. He started off virtually poverty-stricken at three years old. His daddy died. His mother raised him, and they lived in virtual poverty. He worked for an uncle. When he was 30 years old, his uncle died and left him a fortune. This would have ruined most men right there. But John J. Egan, who had become a Christian early in life, Ask God to help him really become a steward in the true sense of that word. And he began to try to really put into practice the theology of making money. He, in order to do this, bought a business that was just being formed, made himself the managing director of the business, and over stiff opposition of the stockholders, although he was the majority stockholder, began to put into practice his Christian principles, the golden rule in business. This was in 1906 here in Birmingham. He brought the American Cast Iron Pipe Company. And he began to try to apply in a very real way Christian principles. He introduced profit sharing. This was unique in the world of business. He even took some of the employees and uh, put them on the board of directors, had the employees elect representatives. He had those who bought the produce, uh, his major <clears throat> purchases, put several men on the board of directors. He wanted their interests at stake, the employees' interests at stake. He limited himself and all stockholders voluntarily to 8% of the profit as a maximum profit in a given year. And all other profits <clears throat> were to be shared with the employees. That meant, uh, one of the early years, that over $400,000, the majority of which would have normally gone to him, was distributed among the employees over and above their regular wages. When he died, uh, he left all of his stock in trust for the employees. All of this made front-page history in the papers of New York as well as in the South. What he was saying was unique. I'd like to quote from a speech that he made to a group of executives entitled The Golden Rule in Business. I would call you to face your responsibilities this morning as leaders of men. I may be talking to stockholders, to executives, to foremen. You have been given of God certain opportunities, certain talents. Men are under your direction and control. 
The true function of industry today is making men. How well have we succeeded? Statistics show that at least one-third, possibly one-half, of the families of wage owners, wage earners employed in manufacturing earn less than enough to support them in anything like a comfortable and decent position. This was early in this century. Do you know that the number of men killed by industry in America averages 25,000 a year and 700,000 are injured? Three percent of the population own 60 percent of the wealth. Sixty-six and two-thirds percent own five percent of the wealth. How are we in a system organized for making money to make men? How are we to make men in such a system, he says? How can we reverse it? First, I name a living wage. We must first be honest. We have no right to rob the man who works honestly and faithfully of a good support for himself and his family in order to enrich the stockholders. Second, we have the profit-sharing plan. Third, we take care of the sick and their families without cost to them. I was one of those who benefited from that, as my father worked for the American Cast Iron Pipe Company all of his life. Fourth, we have the pension fund. May I close with a personal word? Men have asked, is your plan practical? That's not the question. The question is, is it right? Some men say, are you sure that the adoption of these principles of Jesus Christ in my business will make it successful? If you are, I'll go all the way. There's not been a businessman in history uh, who would not be glad to do that. If we cannot put Jesus Christ in business, then we ought to get out of business and get somewhere where we can go with Jesus Christ. No man or business ever gave him right of way but with profit to that man or business. Everything he touched, God blessed, in an unusual way. Here was his uh, initial letter to his board of directors as he set forth his principles. Gentlemen, I recommend that we adopt the principles of Jesus Christ as the guiding principles of this business. I know this suggestion in general terms will meet your sympathy, but you will say, what is the practical everyday meaning of this? And how would the practical application of the teachings of Jesus Christ affect all the various interests, including customers, employees, stockholders, directors, officials, and competitors? I would like to have your answer to this question. He asks for their recommendations, and then he gives his own. Uh, this was in June 3, 1921. There's a man who understood the theology of making money. He understood these basic principles of God's ownership, God's gift, our acknowledgement of God's ownership and his gift. This man blessed the Lord. We see uh, here... And the demand to acknowledge that our material wealth is from God. Second, notice the danger of forgetting that our material wealth is from God. In verse 11, we have first the indication of forgetting. Beware that thou forget not the Lord thy God in not keeping his commandments and his judgments and his statutes, which I command thee this day. How? Do we first indicate that we're forgetting 
these principles, the ownership of the Lord, our stewardship, by failing to keep the commandments of the Lord, says Moses. Beware that thou forget not the Lord thy God in not keeping his commandments. What about the commandment to tithe? Are we keeping that commandment? What about the commandment to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, the Great Commission? Can we carry out that commandment without really administering the Lord's property for him, without giving sacrificially far beyond the tithe? Can we really carry out that command? Here's a letter from Michael Griffiths, a news release, the head of the OMF, one of the groups that we work so closely with in the Great Commission. He speaks of the fact that The closing of Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia should not cause us to lose sight of the 390 million persons still accessible in the rest of East Asia. We must keep in clear perspective that 93% of people in the area are still open for the proclamation of Christ's kingdom. He says that uh, they reiterate their continuing request for 80 new workers each year for the next five years. People are open. The fields are white. Everywhere we go, there's a reaping such as has rarely, if ever, taken place in history. The Great Commission, that great command, requires special management and sacrificial management of our material resources. What about the command to love our neighbor as ourselves? And remember the story of the Good Samaritan as Jesus explained just what that meant. Or the commandment to love the Lord our God with all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our mind and all of our strength. Are we forgetting the commandments of the Lord and thus indicate that we're forgetting that our material wealth is from God? We see the indication of forgetting. Uh, We see the condition that leads to forgetting, prosperity. In verse 12, Lest when thou hast eaten and art full and hast built goodly houses and dwell therein, and when thy herds and thy flocks multiply, and thy silver and thy gold is multiplied, and all thou hast is multiplied, then thine heart be lifted up. What is the condition that leads to forgetting? It's the condition of prosperity. How often I've seen it happen right here in our midst. Some young man or older who's had to really struggle, and as he has, he's had a sense of dependence on the Lord, a sense of obligation, a sense of stewardship, but then he begins to prosper. And as he begins to prosper, he begins to forget the Lord. And soon he loses the keen edge of his commitment, and there's a pull away from the things of the Lord. The awful danger of forgetting that prosperity leads to. Notice the motivation that underlies forgetting. Pride. Then thine heart be lifted up, and thou forget the Lord thy God, which brought thee forth out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. In verse 17, And thou say in thine heart, My power and the might of mine hand hath gotten me this wealth. My business ingenuity, 
My hard work has gotten me this wealth. Wealth breeds self-sufficiency and pride. It weakens our sense of dependence on God. Wealth loses sight of its own origin. It has a short memory. We see the indication that we are forgetting if we don't obey. We see the condition that leads to forgetting, prosperity. We see the motivation that lies behind forgetting, pride. I, I have gotten my wealth. It belongs to me. Notice the correction of the tendency toward forgetting. In verse 18, But thou shalt remember the Lord thy God, for it is he that giveth thee power to get wealth. Thou shalt remember. There was a cartoon in the St. Louis newspaper some years back that showed a man sitting at his desk, and he was going over his ledger and reckoning up the money that he'd made, and all engrossed in his business and his profits. And uh, walking away from him was his soul. And the caption underneath, What shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? And the editorial made the point that there's a second loss of a man's soul, uh, not just speaking of it death, but when that soul begins to walk away from him even now, in a sense, as he becomes all engrossed in profits and in self. And it said underneath, Get up and run after your soul. Catch your soul before it's too late. That's what he's saying here. Here's a corrective. How can I run after my soul? How can I get this sense of stewardship that John J. Egan had? How did he get it? Giving will keep us from growing selfish. Where a man's treasure is, there will his heart be also. Begin with the tithe as a, mini, as a minimum. John J. Egan, as a boy, vowed to the Lord to tithe all that the Lord gave him. He that's faithful in little is faithful in much. Why must we do this? We see what we must do. Why must we do it? My present abilities are from him. It's he that giveth thee power to get wealth, it says. That cuts right across the popular idea of where we get our money from. You know, if money dropped out of the sky like the rain or snow, maybe we'd realize that our wealth comes from God. But because it comes in more obscure ways, we think of it as being done by our own hand. But you or I couldn't move a muscle or originate an idea without God's blessing. I remember a businessman who had made great amounts but who was brought low by the Lord and humbled. And I remember him saying to me, you know, I used to think that I could sell. And God has shown me these last few years that without him I can do nothing. That all of my gifts and talents and abilities have really been from him, although I didn't know it. Remarkable results result when we do recognize that it's from the Lord. Remarkable results in our lives. It produces gratitude. It produces humility. It produces this 
sense of stewardship. Let me trace some of this in the life of John J. Egan. When his uncle died in 1899 and left him the money, a couple of months later he wrote this in sort of a prayer diary. Take, then I pray thee, this servant of thine, unworthy and whose best deeds are stained and marred with sin, and use him for thy great ends in the world. Let him lose himself in all that the flesh counts dear, remembering thy words. He that loseth his life shall find it. May I realize how fully all that I am and all that I have is thine by gift and preservation. O oh Lord, make a plain path for my feet. You notice that? Have you ever done that? Have you ever prayed a prayer like that? Written it out? Oh Lord. I recognize that all that I have and own is thine. I want to use it for your great ends. Make a plain path for my feet. There, there's that tremendous beginning of development of a Christian steward. Again, uh, he wrote this in his prayer diary. Oh, Lord, show me how to invest thy wealth to promote thy glory so that I may bear much fruit. Lead me in a plain path, O Lord, as to how much time to devote to each duty of life, and so direct me that I may glorify thy name to the utmost limit of all the talents with which thou hast endowed and entrusted me. I grant that I may be so blessed as to pay my vow and receive the maximum to give to thy great cause for Jesus' sake. Amen. Again, uh, he says, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things which he possesseth. If I'm to realize the fulfillment of my vow, it is through God alone, then I must go only as and where he leads, consulting him and waiting on him at all times. And then he quotes that tremendous verse from 2 Corinthians 5.15. For we thus judge that if one died for all, then all were dead. And he died that they which live might not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him who died for them and rose again. Notice how that scripture gripped his soul. Again, uh, quoting from John J. Egan, Birmingham, in Birmingham, uh, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, influence for Christ largely negative, have refrained from worldly amusements, etc., but have not been positive for him, have not spoken directly to anyone this week about accepting Christ. He was concerned that he wasn't witnessing as he should, and he resolved to do better. Bought a man. And through the purchase, we'll be enabled to erect a YMCA, a building, and influence men there in all these minds for Christ. He was influenced as he read the biographies of other men. He wrote in the flyleaf of his Bible, David Livingston's great statement, I will place no value 
on anything I have or may possess except in relation to the kingdom of Christ. If anything will advance the interests of that kingdom, it shall be given or kept only as by giving or keeping I shall most promote the glory of him to whom I owe all my hopes in time and eternity. May grace be given to me to adhere to this. There you see the making of a man of God. There you see the theology of money-making. There you see the kind of thoughts that grip the soul of a Christian steward. Why not you be that man? Why not you make a vow just like he did? Pray like he prayed. Oh, what a difference it could make in your life, in the life of this church, in the kingdom of Christ to all eternity. Notice why we are to uh, be careful to remember and to render unto the Lord. Because my present abilities are from him, it is he that giveth thee power to get wealth. And because my future blessings are related to my inheritance and my acknowledgement of this, he says, Thou shalt remember the Lord thy God, for it is he that giveth thee power to get wealth, that he may establish his covenant which he swear unto thy fathers, as it is this day. Do it so he can bless you. Establish his covenant. Recognize him. Render unto him. Acknowledge him. Remember him so he can bless you. Remember him so he can establish his covenant. When we think of the covenant, we think automatically of the aspect of his blessing to our children and our children's children also, which is a part of that covenant. I will be a God to thee and to thy seed after thee. How does this tie in with our recognition? George Truitt, the great pastor who built First Baptist of Dallas, tells of one time speaking to a camp meeting of cowboys, of cattlemen. And as he had been speaking for several days after one of the meetings, one of the great ranchers came up to him and he said, go with, a walk. Go with me for a walk. And they walked up on the mountain there and he said, now I want you to pray a dedicatory prayer. I didn't know until you spoke today. I'm a new Christian, really. And I didn't know that those 25 miles of ranch land aren't mine, they're God's. I didn't know that those thousands of heads of cattle are his. I never knew that. But I want you to kneel down and pray for me and tell him I accept that position as his steward. And then I want to pray. And so uh, Dr. Tritt knelt and tried to pray, Lord, uh, our brother here wants to acknowledge to you your ownership, and he wants to dedicate this to you. And the man was sobbing all the time. When Dr. Tritt finished, the man said, Now, Lord, Lord, I want to give you one more thing. Having given you those things, having recognized your ownership, having dedicated all to you, I want to give you my son. Can't I give him to you now? Won't you call him to yourself that I've prayed for for so long? They went back down. Dr. Truitt stood up to preach that night. He hadn't been preaching ten minutes before a young man stood up in the audience and said, I can't wait till that man finishes 
to tell you I've found the Lord. Who doubts that there was a connection between that rancher's dedication and recognition of God's ownership and that son's conversion, that he may establish his covenant with you. What about it? Are you remembering the Lord or are you forgetting the Lord? This, you see, this stewardship season is our opportunity and our challenge to remember, our privilege to bless the Lord, to remember. It's a privilege to give. One of the elders in the church called me last night. He said, you're going to be speaking of stewardship tomorrow. You know, you spoke some years back and changed my whole approach to this. And the statement you made that's wrong in my heart is it's a privilege to give to the Lord. Tell them it's a privilege to give to the Lord. It's a challenge for a glad and sacrificial response. And if we remember, the Lord will remember. He says, not even a cup of cold water given in the name of Christ will go without its reward. Scrooge said to Marley, you were a, a good businessman. And Marley's comment, business. Mankind is my business. Let us pray. As our hearts are bowed, think of whether or not you're really carrying out this theology of money, whether you're remembering the Lord, your God, who gives you the power to get wealth in the proper way, whether you've really formally acknowledged that stewardship and are really seeking to put it to effect in all areas of your life, Christianizing your possessions. Why not right now seize this opportunity to remember the Lord thy God? Father, we pray that everyone here would be gripped afresh with your ownership and our stewardship. We pray that any present who've never taken that first step of receiving Christ would do so even today. We ask this in his name. Amen.